I would say he's ruthless. It can become deadly given certain circumstances. Throwing her off the Patapsco River Bridge, I mean, that's just, you don't do that because you're having an argument. You know, you do that to silence her. That was an incredible point that you made. How in the world did you find that? He's got a family, he's got a girlfriend, he's got her. There had to be a strong motivation. You pay me up or else. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is episode 10. This podcast may contain graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on The Car Barn Murders. A pending U.S. District Attorney's case against car barn suspect Walter Oliver seemingly disappeared without explanation, and by January of 1936, Oliver's friend and multiple felon, Robert Janney, was back in the Maryland State Penitentiary, this time serving eight years for armed robbery. Robert Janney's wife, Lillian, had linked him with William Clark and James Weir, who were named as suspects on the Carbarn case very early on in the investigation, but their mutual alibi defense threw the investigators off their trail. It seemed like a whitewash since the detectives put a lot more shoe leather down chasing several other potential suspects who had more legitimate stories. A breakdown of the statements of William Clark, James Weir, and Clark's girlfriend, Mary Branch, showed that none of them could have possibly alibied the others. Clark made two trips to the Chevy Chase Lake office on Saturday, two days before the murders, using a story about getting a change carrier back as an excuse. On the day of the murders, William Clark failed to keep an appointment with Mr. Stevens, the superintendent of transportation for Capital Transit, to get his job back, and instead he went to the D.C. police headquarters to offer himself up for an interview. In December of 1934, one month prior to the murders of my uncle Emery Smith and James Mitchell, William Clark, Mary Branch, and James Weir took a road trip to see Francis Gregory, the man who said he was asleep in the trainman's room during the shooting of James Mitchell. They picked Gregory up at the Jesse Theater and took him home so that Gregory could give William Clark some cash to purchase his Capital Transit Company uniform. William Clark wanted his job back so badly that he missed a pre-scheduled appointment with Mr. Stevens on January 21st. He went to the Chevy Chase Lake office two times on Saturday the 19th on the pretense of getting a change carrier, and just a month before the murders, he sold his uniform to Francis Gregory. That seemed like an awful lot of flip-flopping for a man who was superficially adamant about going back to work for Capital Transit. Robert Janney, William Clark, and Walter Oliver all jumped straight to the top of my suspect list. My job transitioned from finding viable suspects to putting the pieces together to link these three men and explain why none of them were ever taken to trial for my uncle's and James Mitchell's murders. Robert Janney confessed to being involved to his wife Lillian. He came home with wet pants one morning around the time of the murders. He panicked when Lillian told him that a man had been arrested and ratted him out and told Lillian he got $100 for his participation after they had to shoot their way out. Walter Oliver confessed to Horace Davis and gave him information that only a participant would know. 
Oliver said they killed my Uncle Emery because he recognized one of them, that he was with a couple of fellows, that he might as well have killed a hundred after killing one, and that they went northbound on Connecticut Avenue, the direction of the Rock Creek Bridge. William Clark turned himself in on the day of the murders, was held for three days, gave an alibi that couldn't be substantiated by anyone, no follow-up was ever completed, he sold his Capital Transit uniform to Francis Gregory, went to the Chevy Chase Lake office twice on Saturday right before the murders to get a change carrier, and missed an appointment with Mr. Stevens to get his job back. He also failed to mention a meeting with a police officer on Sunday night. There wasn't one word, not one, about any follow-up investigation of these three men. The only suspects inside of that case file with obvious multi-level inculpatory evidence against them. I was starting to believe that this entire case was a cover-up. As I was looking into Clark, Janney, and Oliver, and read through the case file for the umpteenth time, I found some handwritten notes that caught my attention. On a random checklist page, one of the detectives made a note to check into the Hot Shops robbery that occurred about a week and a half before the car barn murders. The descriptions and M.O. of that robbery seems like it might have been committed by William Clark and one of the others. The note said that a watch stolen from the victim of this hot shops robbery was pawned to a man named John Swales, a known affiliate of William Clark's. I did some more research and found a couple of newspaper articles about this hot shops robbery case. This armed robbery happened to the cash collector of the Hot Shops restaurant chain on January 8, 1935, about two weeks before the car barn murders. The victim was on 4th Street Northeast, exiting his truck, and he was holding a metal strong box that contained the day's cash register money, about 180 bucks. Two white men approached him from both sides and demanded the strong box at gunpoint, the suspects had obviously been watching the victim because he had just disengaged the lock on that strong box before he went into the restaurant. The men took that box and fled across a vacant lot. That same victim had also been held up seven months prior when two men ran his truck off the road and took the money box and his truck keys. As I was reading about the Hot Shops case, it brought another attempted robbery back into my mind the one at the Brightwood ticket office on August 26, 1934, the one where Mr. Balderson hid inside of a steel cabinet rather than open the money cage door at gunpoint. The attempted robbery of the Brightwood office fit the same M.O. that seemed to have been used on James Mitchell at Chevy Chase Lake. The front door to the ticket office was somehow unlocked and Mitchell was gunned down inside of the money cage. The suspect description given by Mr. Balderson was pretty generic. A white male, 30, 5 foot 9, 160 pounds with dark hair. That description definitely fit Walter Oliver. He was 30, 5'11, 175 pounds with brown hair. It vaguely described William Clark, who was 25, 5'8, 220 with brown hair. Robert Janney was 36, 5'9", and he only weighed 130 pounds with brown hair. All three of them were out of prison at that point. So, it's a serious possibility that one or all of them 
could have been the suspects on the Brightwood robbery attempt. By October of 1935, Robert Janney was back in prison serving his eight years for armed robbery on top of the three months he got for breaking his wife Lillian's nose. He spent his time writing letters and the detectives began intercepting Janney's correspondences. Robert Janney wrote to Lillian on February 7, 1936, and he told her he was investigating the matter that she had spoken to him about, the story that detectives Volton and Rogers had given Lillian to elicit information from him about the Carbarn case. He also said that he would write to the place where Lillian worked if he didn't hear back from her by that Tuesday. Lillian read her husband's letter, and she panicked. She grabbed a scrap of paper and scribbled a note directly to Detective Volton. Saturday, February 8, 1936. Dear Detective Volton, I'm writing this in a hurry. I got a letter from Janny today, and I would like to see you and ask for some advice on this letter. If I don't answer this letter, he'll write to the place where I work. If he does, you know what that means. I would like to know if I should answer it. Very truly yours, Lillian Janney. There's no historical documentation about where Lillian Janney worked in 1935, but it's obvious that if her employer, or someone who worked with her, found a letter from Robert Janney, it would mean trouble. Another option is that Lillian wasn't doing work that was legal or legitimate, and the possibility that another man wouldn't take too kindly to letters from Robert Janney. That second scenario is borne out in subsequent letters. Janney suspected that Lillian was either choosing to see another man, or someone was after her for unknown reasons. Robert Janney didn't mince words when it came to writing to Lillian. In a letter from December 1935, a month before her meeting with Volton and Rogers, Robert Janney wrote Lillian a two-page missive, and it reads in part, Dear kid, No, babe, I'm not mad with you. Why should I be? The grapevine tells me a lot of things. You tell me not to send my return of address so that someone will not know I'm writing to you. If you weren't ashamed of me, you wouldn't give a damn who knew. Or are you afraid someone will be jealous? You said someone was jealous, but why should you care? I do think there are two, not one, trying to get you to go out with them, or were trying. But that doesn't worry me, for I know you, and I know I'll have you when I'm free. What you do now is your own business. When you tell me the names of those who have been after you, I will tell you where to find them. Why does your mother hate me so? What did she say when you gave her my message? I told you I believed nothing until you told me it was so face to face. So if you have anything to tell me, be woman enough to do it yourself. Don't have others tell me. Every time you write, you're in a hurry. Diggs told me there was no use for me to write to you, that your mother said you were there with me and that she wouldn't let you get any mail from me. Anybody that touches my mail will regret it. There are laws made for people who tamper with mail. Somebody has been reading your mail or else you've been talking. When you answer those five questions, truthfully, on oath, don't get mad, I'll tell you a lot of things that I have to keep to myself for the present. All my love to you, darling. Tell me who the ones are that are trying to get to you. It would be okay if he was with you. Lovingly, me. Robert Janney didn't trust Lillian to tell him what was going on, so he reached out to some old friends for help. One friend was a woman named Nolia Foreman. Her husband was 
Gilbert Foreman. I discovered through my research that Gilbert Foreman had spent time in the Maryland Training School for Boys in 1920 with Walter Oliver and Horace Davis. Gilbert Foreman worked at the horse track, which was a likely inn for Robert Janney and Walter Oliver on the illegal racing wire racket. William Clark also admitted to frequenting the horse track during his interview. Robert Janney wrote to Nolia Foreman to see if she would be willing to find out what was happening with Lillian. Dear Nolia, you don't know my wife. She's from West Baltimore, Lillian Lucas. Mighty nice girl, Noli. Wonderful disposition, congenial and happy and was true as could be the whole time we were together. But I'm afraid for her now, dreadfully so. I saw her last week and hardly knew her. She's changed so. It hurts me, for I believe someone is forcing her into God knows what. If I could only get someone to talk to her and give her a hand morally, it might avert catastrophe. The fact that I'm so utterly helpless to do anything myself nearly sets me crazy. Would you want to have a little talk with Lil for me? She's a nice kid and perhaps don't realize things in their true light. As ever, Bob. Someone is forcing her into God knows what? Was Lillian Janney being sex trafficked? Robert and Lillian's daughter, Josephine, was placed in the Kelso Home for Girls in February of 1936 during the time of these correspondences. The Kelso Home was an orphanage for children whose parents didn't have a means of support. I don't know what was going on with Lillian Janney, but for her to give her daughter up to an orphanage? It couldn't have been anything good. Janney's friend, Nolia Foreman, wrote him back, and she politely declined to intervene. Robert Janney continued to write to Lillian after her meeting with Volton and Rogers to find out what exactly was going on. Clearly, the information he sought from inside the prison wasn't forthcoming, and Janney's back was against the wall. He made surreptitious mention of Detectives Volton and Rogers in his follow-up letter without naming them. Word may have gotten to him that the cops were now intercepting his mail, so he started communicating in broader terms. Dear babes, I've done a lot of thinking in these last few weeks. The whole thing points to just two things. You profess to fear someone. Who, I don't know. Again, I wish to assure you that nothing I've done will ever hurt you. Those men were not there about me, I'm sure. They may be bluffing you for three reasons. First, thinking I've done something else, which is untrue, and that you'll tell them. Make sure they are who they say they are, then make them tell you all. Second, you yourself may have done or said something that made them suspicious. You don't confide in me, so I can't say about this. You should know. Third, that someone is trying to scare you into doing something. I'll explain later. The other thing is this. Someone may have told you that I was going to cause you trouble because you stepped out with another. That's untrue, for I've told you to go out when and where you please and with who you please if you want to, just as I would do if our places were reversed. I don't expect you to sit down and look at four walls. Although there are laws to bind a wife to her husband, I would never use them to hold you, for I would not want a woman I had to hold in that way. If a woman don't care for me enough to stick to me of her own accord, I'm better off without her. So don't worry about me being low enough to resort to anything of this kind, no matter what happens. For if I can't keep you, I certainly won't hinder you in any way. Now, about that girl. 
If you know who she's friendly with that wants us separated, you probably have the solution to the whole thing. Someone must have put her up to telling that lie with the idea of causing us to split. Maybe you know why. And who. These lies have got to stop, for your sake as well as mine, and I want you to help me to stop them. If you're willing to do so, let me know. But first, make sure that in so doing, it won't affect anyone you don't want it to. As ever, Bob. Those were some mighty cavalier words from a guy who punched his wife in the face and broke her nose, committed an armed robbery, and got himself an eight-year stint in the state prison. I honestly have no idea who Robert Janney is talking about regarding the woman who wanted them separated, but it's clear that Janney was banging his head against the wall, trying to find out just what Lillian had told Volton and Rogers, and it seemed like she wasn't going to budge. Besides, Janney wasn't getting out of prison anytime soon. Lillian Janney disappeared off the radar completely in 1936. I don't know if she went on the run or if something worse happened to her. Sadly, it's just another unanswered question. Getting back to my investigation. On a running checklist page inside of the case file, just a long list of scribbled notes, there was a reference to a murder at 18th and Columbia Road, and it's said to be sure to ask Mary Branch if she had ever heard about William Clark killing a woman There were no details about this murder or a victim's name, nothing except an abbreviated location, but after a long search through historical newspapers, I found it. The victim's name was Lizzie Janes, and she was killed on April 5, 1931, during an armed robbery, according to the Washington Post article. Bandit guns claimed their second victim in less than three weeks when Mrs. Lizzie Janes died last night in Garfield Hospital, following closely after James H. Lane, streetcar motorman, died from a robber's bullet, Mrs. Janes, 59-year-old cashier at the Garden Tea Shop restaurant, succumbed to a bullet wound sustained Friday night from the automatic pistol in the hands of two armed and masked bandits who held up and robbed the restaurant. The article went on to say that homicide detectives were without any tangible clues, even though several people were inside the restaurant and witnessed the robbery and shooting. None of them were able to identify the criminals because they had masks on. The stolen car, with stolen tags, that was used for that crime was found abandoned near the National Zoo on Connecticut Avenue. That's a little over a mile south of the Chevy Chase Lake crime scene. Also, very curiously, The story said that the shooting of Lizzie Janes appeared to be accidental. One of the suspects had taken the cash from the register, and the other suspect asked a waitress if there was any more money hidden in back. Suddenly, a pistol was discharged. But Lizzie Janes didn't flinch, and she didn't even realize she'd been shot. She waited for the police, gave them her statement, and when she got home later that night, Her leg went numb, and she found the gunshot in her abdomen. She died in the hospital, and the coroner recovered a 25 caliber bullet from her body. The police surmised that these assailants were also the same ones who robbed a hotel drugstore the week prior to robbing and killing Lizzie Janes. So, there were three crimes that were connected. The robbery and murder of Lizzie Janes by two white men with a 25 caliber gun, 
the murder of streetcar motorman James Lane by two white men with a 32 caliber semi-automatic and a hotel drugstore robbery all within a few weeks, and the police thought that the same perpetrators were behind every single one of them. A month and a half after the murder of Lizzie Janes, a man named Thomas Jordan admitted to firing the shot that killed her, and during his interview, he said that he had never met his accomplices before that night. He didn't give any names to the detectives because he said he didn't know them. In a very strange twist, Thomas Jordan said that he was set to go on a date with a blonde woman that night and met her at Thomas Circle. She was waiting there for him, but she was with another man. Without questioning who this other man was, why he was with her to go on this supposed one-on-one -on -one date, or what was going on, Thomas Jordan told the police that all three of them got into the car and they drove to the Garden Tea Shop restaurant. He said the blonde woman waited in the car just up the road, acting as a getaway driver. Jordan said that the other man gave him a mask and a gun. Thomas Jordan held Lizzie Janes up, took $101 from the register, and said he got a case of the jitters, and the gun went off. He didn't see any reaction from Lizzie Janes and assumed the shot missed. He and the other man ran up the street to the car with the blonde female driver, and they all stopped at 6th and Pennsylvania Avenue to split up the money. Thomas Jordan got out of the car, and the blonde woman and this unknown male just went on their way. What a crock of shit. But everyone bought it and took Thomas Jordan at his word. Thomas Jordan claimed he didn't know the other suspect and he didn't know that he'd shot Lizzie Janes until he read it in the newspaper the next day. He said that weighed on him until he just couldn't stand it anymore and he turned himself in and confessed. His accomplices were never caught or named, just vaguely described, but it's really important for the car barn case. A white man and a blonde woman? Hold on to that thought. Seriously, remember that detail. Going back to my Uncle Emery's murder, why would one of the detectives make a note to ask Mary Branch about the Lizzie Jane's murder case and whether or not William Clark had ever mentioned it to her? Did they suspect William Clark to be the second perpetrator with Thomas Jordan? I'm going to give a tentative yes to that question because of another set of newspaper articles I found about a case related to the car barn murders that aren't mentioned anywhere in the file. I was slack-jawed when I read the details. Never underestimate your sixth sense. This next case would blow the lid off and finally set my wheels spinning toward a solution to the car barn murders. Are you ready for the first hill of this roller coaster? Well, tighten your lap restraint and please keep your hands inside the car at all times. Here we go. On Monday, May 27, 1935, at 2 o'clock in the morning, William Clark said that he had an appointment and had to leave immediately. Against her better judgment, Mary Branch got up and started to get dressed after Clark harangued her to go with him out to a farm near Baltimore. He told her he needed to visit a man about a whiskey still. Clark never did his underhanded dealings during normal hours, but this seemed especially ridiculous. Why did Mary need to go with him all the way to Baltimore right that minute? It was late. Mary was tired and she just wanted to go to bed, but William Clark 
goaded her. She acquiesced and got into the car. There was no arguing with Clark once he made up his mind to do something. The city lights dimmed as they drove out the old Frederick Road toward Baltimore. Mary's eyes were heavy, and she asked Clark if he really wanted to keep going. It was so dark outside. He said nothing and kept driving, so Mary slid down in her seat to take a quick nap. Clark saw Mary close her eyes. After a couple of miles, he turned off the main drag onto a dirt side road and headed toward Ilchester. He kept fidgeting and reaching under the seat, and he took his eyes down to the floorboard. Mary felt the car jerk as Clark righted the wheel. Clark was hunched over, nearly in her lap, as his right hand patted the floor while his left barely held the car steady. "'What are you doing?' she asked. "'I'm adjusting the damn seat,' he said and sat back. Mary looked around. This wasn't Frederick Road. She didn't recognize the area at all. As she looked out the passenger window, Clark hit the brakes and stopped the car. He tightened his grip around a blackjack, the misplaced object he'd been searching for and had tucked away just for this purpose. Without hesitation, he took a full swing and hit Mary Branch in her forehead with the lead weight wrapped in leather. The gaping wound sent blood spatter across the passenger window. Clark reared back and swung the blackjack again and again. Mary didn't have the time or forethought to raise her arm to block the blows and she nearly lost consciousness. Her body slumped against the passenger door and blood poured from her head, staining her dress and the seat. Clark tossed the weapon down and got out of the car. He walked around to the passenger side. He took Mary's small, limp frame and heaved her over his shoulder. He carried her 50 feet to the side of a bridge that stood above the remnants of the old Patapsco River gristmill. Mary came to, and the world was upside down. For a split second, she saw the metal railing and the flowing water below. Just enough time to comprehend what was happening, and through thick clots of blood in her mouth, she pleaded for him not to toss her over. Clark took another step and slung her body over the 35-foot drop into the rocky river. A splash. Then, silence. William Clark got in the car and drove back to Gerard Street. Around that same time frame, Detective Frank Brass of the D.C. Police made some notes of his own in the case file. Apparently, Brass had spoken to Francis Gregory, the one sleeping on the bench in the trainman's room. Gregory told Detective Brass that Mary Branch had been confiding in him, and she said that William Clark would sit around and plan holdups. Mary also said that Clark was seeing a blonde woman who lived in the 2700 block of Illinois Avenue. Frances Gregory and Mary Branch were close friends, or close enough for her to feel comfortable enough to consign some pretty deep secrets about her boyfriend. William Clark sold his Capitol Transit uniform to Frances Gregory, and Gregory was the only person left alive at the Chevy Chase Lake office after the murders. Francis Gregory was now on my suspect list, but something about him didn't sit right with me. I couldn't put my finger on it, but for some reason, deep down, I didn't believe that Francis Gregory was a bad guy. I coupled the information provided by Francis Gregory via Mary Branch with the Lizzie Jane's case, 
the white man and blonde woman that Thomas Jordan couldn't, or rather wouldn't, name? I started to look at some of the other random notations that were apparently never put together between the three different police departments working on this case. These notes appeared to be in Detective Volton's handwriting, and they said, 4507 Illinois Avenue, Edith Small or Duval, Landsberg's Beauty Shop. After a little research, I found out that Edith Small had blonde hair. Her maiden name was Duval, and she lived on Illinois Avenue. Mary Branch said that William Clark was seeing a blonde woman on Illinois Avenue. Volton's notes also said, Went to Mayor's Furniture, $28 for furniture. Also, see Warden, Towson, Maryland House of Corrections, what he heard when he talked to Edith Small. There were no dates on these notes, but it had to have been around the fall of 1935 when William Clark was in prison with Robert Janney. So apparently, at some point, William Clark purchased furniture with this blonde woman, Edith Small, and she went to the prison to see him. At 2 o'clock in the morning on May 27, 1935, William Clark tossed Mary Branch over a 35-foot bridge into the Patapsco River after beating her senseless with a blackjack. So it seemed like Clark moved on to another woman. But was anything really that simple? After William Clark left Mary Branch for dead in the river and he got back to the apartment on Gerard Street, a taxi driver got a call from Benny Johnson, William Clark's cousin. Benny Johnson received information from Catonsville, Maryland to pass on to Clark. Johnson told the taxi driver to go to the apartment on Gerard Street. The driver knocked on the door and William Clark answered and asked him what he wanted. The cabbie gave William Clark Benny Johnson's message. Mary Branch was in the hospital. She wasn't dead. If you have information about the Car Barn murders, go to the Shattered Souls Facebook page and leave me a message. Opening music by Sam Johnson at samjohnsonlive.com. Shattered Souls The Car Barn Murders is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. 